Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. On Tuesday, President Obama delivered his seventh and final State of the Union address. While the speech was avidly followed by the political class, the general public responded with a yawn. The total viewership for the speech was 31.3 million, or 9.8% of all Americans, which is the lowest ever recorded since Nielsen began tracking State of the Union ratings in 1993. And the president promised to make his speech shorter than his previous addresses right at the beginning, and he just barely delivered on that promise. At 58 minutes and 44 seconds, it was Obama's shortest State of the Union ever, though he only cut his best time by 66 seconds over his previous best. That was back in 2013. Of course, that's assuming that a shorter State of the Union is a better State of the Union, and that's generally one of my default assumptions about these things. So, Well, do they do they count in the applause time? How is that measured? Is it speaking time, or is it time where he's, you know... That's a good question. You know, I, I do not have an answer to that. Because my there might be less applause uh, now uh, than, than perhaps certainly in 2008. Excellent point. I'll have to look yeah. into that. So it was it was still right around the same length, and uh, it was not as... as the, as the White House promised, it was not a laundry list of policy prescriptions, which makes sense because it's not like hardly any president in his final year is going to get much policy passed, and certainly not President Obama. Uh, so in terms of substance, he kind of arranged it around those what he called four big questions, the economy, technology, America's role in the world, and finally, the decline of civility in politics. And uh, on that last air, on that last area, the decline of civility in politics, President Obama admitted that you know I'm no Lincoln, I'm no Roosevelt, and uh, I haven't done the sort of job that I hoped I would be able to do. Uh, what did you think about all that, Jay? Well, I'm I'm in the uh, was was part of the 89 percent, or no, I'm sorry, 91 percent of the country who didn't watch it, <coughs> um, uh, for for a number of reasons. Um, I think I just had the other stuff going on and. Uh, I, I like you. I think you've expressed your frustration at State of the Union speeches, and uh, so no, I, I can't. I can't comment directly uh, on it. Uh, I, I would agree he's no. He's no Lincoln. He's no FDR. Um, I, I guess it's it's sort of you know what what you what you expected uh, uh, from from the sort of end of end of the Obama era speech. Um, you know the other. I guess my my issue, and again, this is something that's less Obama and more just general small R Republicanism is uh, I think it's probably a good sign that fewer people are watching state of the union addresses. Uh, <laughs> but, okay. Uh, and why, why would you say that? Well, it's, it is, it's a little bit. Um, and when I say small R Republican, I mean uh, the sense that uh, government are, are almost Whiggish uh, ought to be sort of humble, uh, not uh, uh Enchanted with the the the, the trappings of, of uh, power, um, and the the idea of having the you know leader come and <clears throat> stand before Congress, and I understand it's it's at this point a, a pretty well established tradition. Well, back in the day, um, that the president would just send a letter basically to Congress, exactly, essentially, exactly. and it's and we this did old... that for the first I, I believe 
fifty some years. It all changed under under uh, Wilson, I believe, was the one who at least started doing the the speeches. And Wilson, for a variety of reasons, was an awful president and an awful human being. I want to just get that in there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, I thought there might have been. I thought there might have been presidents before Wilson who actually addressed. There problems. were some. I, but, I could be. I yeah. could be wrong. But it was a, it was a sort of sporadic. Sort mm-hmm. of exactly. Thing. It wasn't a, a yearly. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, George Washington, um, who defined the role of, of the presidency, which is, is something unique in, in human history, um, would have would have, you know, really sort of shaken his head at uh, the idea of, of a, a state of the union uh, address. Oh, absolutely. Um, so anyway, that's 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 my issue with it. But but it's sort of, again, in the last hundred years become part of our political culture and we kind of come to expect it. And um Maybe I think we've gotten to the point of, of being cynical enough that, yeah, now we just don't bother with it. I, you know, the other thing I, I think would be interesting, and, and you might have the numbers on it. Um, I certainly don't. But does uh, a an audience for the State of the Union decline uh, through a, a president's uh, terms, uh, years? I mean, I, I would assent, think that in most cases, their final State of the Union would be less watched than their initial. I don't have numbers on that, but I seem to recall reading something about where it depends very much on what's going on in the world, though uh, I'm not really sure about that. But in any case, still, 31.3 million is not a small number of people, certainly. And and a lot of people did did watch, and I think President Obama made some important points. he, He pointed out that in many respects, things are in fact better off than when he took over. Uh, in, in certainly Fair the enough. economy. And and now there's one question about that is, well, to what extent is President Obama able to take credit for that? Well, he's certainly willing to take credit for that. Uh, one of the things I tell my students is when things are good, presidents get way too much credit. And when things are bad, presidents get way too much blame. It's one of the commonalities of uh, presidents is when they're asked about the job, they almost invariably say, well, I had no idea how little power I actually had. I expected to be able to do more stuff. President Obama said that, and you know, presidents, almost all presidents before him have said that. And I think the public has this idea of the president as being able to do all of these things that unless circumstances are really lined up very well, it's difficult for them to do. Now, President Obama had those circumstances in his first year or so in office, which is why the major legislation under President Obama happened during that time when he had a majority in uh, a majority in the House and he had a filibuster-proof majority in the Bare Senate. Majority, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that that went away, and since then, progress has been a lot more halting. Well, I, I, I'll. I could differ with you on when you say progress. Oh, well, certainly. <laughs> yeah, you would not call you would not call Obamacare progress, right? You won't call things. Um, and and yeah, I, I think that's. I don't know. Again, the, the whole trappings of it is are a little troubling to me. Um, uh, the the you know special guests and the, the special the guests have gotten seat, out of hand. Leaving the, yeah. leaving the empty seat for gun victims, um, which again that struck me as just just bizarre. Um, was there a particular gun victim he was going to invite who who was was shot just before? I mean, it's just well, it's symbolic. It's of... political theater, and <clears throat> that's why I tend to avoid the speech and just look at the transcript and and other things like that because it's just that the the theatrical aspect of it sometimes can be a bit a bit much for me. But I think in you know there were some substantive, substantive things about it. For one thing, I think he points out he pointed out that there's a big difference between how 
he and, and by extension by a lot of Democrats see the state of the country and the state of the world and how Republicans do. If you listen to Republicans, we are down a we're going down a long, long downward spiral and things are awful and it's a, a dark and terrible and scary world. And certainly President Obama's vision of the world is much more optimistic than that, I would say. And and I think I think well, he has a No, oh, please go ahead. It's, it's more optimistic now. <laughs> I think that's more that's less a Republican Democrat thing. That's just sort of a uh, party who's who's in power is versus the party who's out of power. I think that's a good um, point. Yeah, absolutely. Is that what we would see the exact same thing if a Republican were in office, God forbid, and the Democrat and Democrats were challenging. So certainly. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, and on the point of this idea of I don't even know if President Obama actually believed it, that he would somehow be able to come in and transcend uh, partisan divides and, and, and be above all of this and bring the country together. That, to me, it strikes me as being either, A, incredibly naive or, B, very sort of politically cynical and calculating to even say that when you would know better. And President Obama is certainly a very smart guy, and so I tend to think he's not really naive on that point. And and I really feel, I mean, I'm, I'm someone who's, you know, voted for President Obama uh, twice, not more than twice, uh, which is a good thing, right? So I really feel that one of the, you know, he was right in one of his big failings is a failure to bring people together. And I think he's actively worked against that. I mean, again, this is coming from someone who generally agrees with President Obama on a wide range of issues that he has an attitude about him. He has what some people would call a smugness about him. At that, that is, I think, very off-putting. Uh, that the whole idea that well, if you do not agree with me, you're obviously a moron. And he would never come out directly and say that. But boy, you feel that well, I mean, so strongly. Close to that. Yeah, yeah. And so, <laughs> and, I mean, in and, previous State of the Union addresses, he came uh, pretty close to saying that to the Supreme Court justices. Well, and you know, um, which which again is is. Just, you know, again, striking strikes me as inappropriate and, uh, you know, a, a big violation of the, the spirit of, of, you know, small R Republicanism, I'll, yeah. I'll call it that. You know, um, go ahead. But no, and I, I think, look, I think a lot of uh, hubris is what uh, got in President Obama's way. Um, you know, if you look at the political capital he had coming into office, which was tremendous, um I think there there would have been Republicans who could have worked with him uh, on things. You could have had something different with health health care, uh, but he very much took the it, it's my way or the highway. Uh, oh, I think that's I, entirely I think, wrong. I think, I think you're that's, absolutely that's wrong. That's one of the but... reasons he he lost the majority that that uh, he entertained in the political capital he had coming in, and uh, ever since then it's it's just been the. Uh, you know, the necessary, necessary, I guess, to demonize the other side. So. Wow. I think that's just so completely wrong in terms of the analysis. I think that President Obama tried to work with Republicans during his during his first few years in office. And when he, in fact, when, when Democrats advanced a health care a healthcare program that actually was originally a Republican suggestion uh, a decade or so before. He didn't get a single Republican to go along. So I think that it was well, no, pretty no, pretty clear talk, that let's talk about reaching across the. I mean, remember when when Reagan uh, redid the tax code? Uh, again, this was a situation where he reached across the aisle necessarily uh, and brought in a lot of Democrats who were willing to support his ideas. Um, Obama didn't do that. Obama didn't try it. I think maybe it's it's we're living in a little bit of a different yeah. different era. Yeah. Uh but 
I would agree with you that he I, I didn't think do it. That's sort of the measure the measure of leadership. Well, I mean, no, I it's mean, it's one of those. It's it's it shouldn't be that hard to get your friends to agree with you. Well, I think that's uh, the problem. Leadership is, is being able to get the other guys to to come along. Well, I think I think you're right that we live in a very different era, and so I think in many ways President Reagan's job was a whole lot easier than President Obama's job. And so if we have to judge on degree of difficulty, I think being a president, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, in an era where political elites are so incredibly polarized, it's it's a much harder lift. It's much more difficult to get things done. And you and I will disagree on this, but I feel that President Obama made a made an effort in his first year or so and got nothing out of it. And though and that after that just basically said, okay, fine, then I guess this is how it's going to have to be. And I think... Or, okay, let's look a little more recent example, uh, Bill Clinton on issues like NAFTA uh, or welfare reform. Now, again, maybe that was a little bit different. It was almost the Congress sort of leading the president, bringing him in on, on right. board uh, with certain things. But again, there was there was much more of the spirit of who can we, we work with? And, and, you know, there was there used to be the sense and uh, that most major legislation, and I know this was always the way it was at the state level, is that you would certainly try to get at least some members of the minority party on board just because of the a sense of, of legitimacy that you needed to add to it, uh, that to say, look, everybody has been involved in this discussion. Uh, and I, I think that's that's sort of where, where uh, he went wrong and went off the rails, so... Okay. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I tend to think, I tend to think he made much more of an effort, but again, that's a, uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that point, certainly. Uh, as I'm sure you heard, Jay, that right around the time that uh, President Obama was starting his uh, speed of the, speed of the union, that, what the hell is that? The state of the union address, uh, we learned that, uh, Iran's revolutionary guard seized two U.S. Navy patrol boats and their 10 crew members who had strayed into Iranian waters near a major, major naval base. And as expected, at least as I would have expected, many conservatives freaked out before waiting for any actual, you know, facts to come in. They castigated the president for not calling for, I don't know, carpet bombing of Iran in the State of the Union address or something, and they claimed that Iran had violated international law, and this was another sign of how President Obama's destroyed our foreign policy and made us weak and so forth. And when the facts actually did come in, it turned out that the U.S. sailors had, in fact, screwed up in their navigation, which that differed from the initial Defense Department report saying that there were some kind of mechanical difficulties. And then the whole thing was a big nothing, resolved in less than 24 hours when Iran returned to sailors and the ships, and none of them were any worse for wear. So what did you make of this, Jay? Well, I, I guess if, if, if our, our position is we want to um, uh, thank people for taking us captive and <clears throat> letting us letting us go reasonably quickly, uh, I suppose that's that's the way to go. Um, Maybe we shouldn't go into their territorial waters through a navigation error, which seems a bit uh, uh, questionable, certainly. Well, no, and, and look, neither neither you or nor I know exactly what was going on there. Um, uh, I, from my perspective, I, I certainly hope we were spying on the Iranians. Um, As opposed to being incompetent. My, yeah, our two choices are we were incompetent or we were spying. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> right. I, I mean, I, I, and let's put it this way. If, if, if we aren't spying on the Iranians, then I think there's a level of incompetence there. Um, but uh, to the, the idea that uh, we still don't denounce anytime someone seizes our, our people. Uh, do we go into their territory uh, without? I mean, I, I, I don't think I don't think what they did was was unreasonable. 
given given the you know given what we did, it seems like we. I mean, oh, I know. I, I would say I would say it is unreasonable. I would say it is unreasonable. I, I think the uh, you could have. Let's put it this way. Let's say uh, a French ship uh, wanders into our territorial waters. Uh, do you think we would seize the crew and a, hold that, them captive? I think it's a bad analogy. And... I think it's a bad analogy, and also the vessel wasn't stripped. I think it's a bad analogy because we we are allies. We've been good allies with France for a long time. Whereas right, that's let's, not let's the case with Iran. The Venezuelan crew. I would certainly Again, hope that do, we do, would do, seize would that we, ship. We, yeah, we absolutely. People, will we hold these people hostage? I would think. No, I think we would we hostage would escort I, them I think back is... to international waters and say, "Hey, stay out." I, um, I think that it, I, I think you're wrong. I think that if the if the situation were reversed, the same Republicans who are freaking out about this would be calling for us to to seize this this foreign enemy ship and do exactly what the Iranians did, and even more so, in fact. And so, I don't think there was any problem with what they did. I think it was a minor kind of blip. Now, one thing I will say is that I think that one of the reasons why Iran was so <clears throat> willing to to cooperate. <laughs> was that this was just days before we were getting ready to lift sanctions and unfreeze around $100 billion yes. in Iranian assets. Now, $100 billion, billion will make you think twice about holding hostages, and certainly Iran has a history of doing that. Uh, back in 2007, Iran captured 15 British sailors in the Persian Gulf, which the U.S. actually, we officially call it the Arabian Gulf because we don't want to give them any of the credit, I guess, for that. But anyway, they held those folks for, I think, a couple of weeks essentially, and before they released them. So, but they did give them uh, wonderful parting gifts, I understand, so forth. So there was that. I don't think our folks got any wonderful parting gifts, so I don't know. But in any case, I think that was a big part of it, and we won't always have that to hold over their heads. I, I guess let me just put it this way. What other, what other country out there, and it's, it's a small list, but I, there is a list, I suppose. Uh, who else takes hostages? Who else seizes people uh, at sea? I mean, again, it's it's uh, a, a little bit astounding, and and we're maybe a little bit willing to to uh, write it off because it's the Iranians. It's it's almost as if, look, at least they held, didn't hold us for fifteen days or four hundred forty four days. Um, but uh, regardless, I, I think, and this is something that's that's you know, you know I've always troubled me uh, about Obama, is you don't get the sense that he's rooting for for the United States. Oh, I I totally do. I just I I've, think I've he doesn't see this before. Like in, in you know the Olympics, you got to think he's he's kind of like rooting for the, you know, I don't know Costa no, Rican soccer team or something. I think really no. Play. I think the difference is he doesn't see the world in black and white terms, and he's willing to try to figure out how other people see the U.S. You know, we know that we're good guys and we have good intentions. And I believe that, I believe that in my heart that we do have good intentions. But if you look back at the history of the United States in the Middle East, we've done some egregious stuff in the Middle East for decades and decades. And so there's a huge amount of mistrust and rightfully so. And so looking at it from that standpoint, it's a very different worldview and I, I understand that worldview, and I think we can't just assume that everyone should look at us as being the good guys because we know we're the good guys. That's not how they see it, and they have a right to see it that way based on a really awful past actions by the United States in that region. Wow. I, mean, I, I, just, I would just say, I mean, you have to ignore uh, <clears throat> the Iranians have, have a little bit of a history of awful past actions. Sure they do. And, and you know, and so, I mean— the idea that we that we don't even denounce this. There's nothing to uh, I, denounce. I guess that's that's what's 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 really troubling me is is that there's no, um, 
you know. What would it be like? Wow, you stopped our you 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 seized us because we were in your territory, either spying or being incompetent. We can't say which. I mean, I don't I don't see that there's anything to denounce. I think we should you know we should just say, well, hey, no harm, no foul, and move right on. All right, and my, I guess my last point on this, and your Iran is Iran is uh, I imagine running at full repeat the images of our sailors on their knees with guns pointed to their heads, uh, which most people would would. Uh, have pointed out is is a violation of the Geneva Convention, uh, <clears throat> but that doesn't apply to Iran because they're special and well, we sort of expect that of them, uh, and we'll, we'll give them a pass. So that's that's what what troubles me is uh, our our sailors are also now being used in uh, Middle East propaganda films, uh, and and that that will continue, and um, you know I, I think it's it's. Iran likes to take hostages, and and maybe we were in the wrong place at the wrong time. That remains to be seen, um, but uh, we we can't just apologize for for uh, someone uh, uh, kidnapping our people. Right, and we would never do anything like that and hold them in, say, Cuba or something like that in Guantanamo for years and years with no charges because we are, we, are, uh, we are without sin in this matter, certainly. But anyway, um, a longer conversation perhaps about uh, uh, morality and foreign policy. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on, in what I've decided to call the please God make it end portion of the news – the top seven Republican presidential hopefuls gathered in Charleston, South Carolina to uh, make up facts, trade insults, spout one-liners, and throw in the occasional policy proposal that you could easily fit on a post-it note. Um, I guess technically it was a debate. This is the sixth of 12 that are scheduled. But to me, calling it a debate so demeans the true meaning of the word that I can't actually bring myself to use that term to describe whatever it was that happened. Uh, what do you think about this latest Republican debate, Jay? Well, it's there. There are too many debates, um, but we're getting we're getting through them, and the field will start to narrow, and there will be more substance in later debates. We could, um, we could certainly hope so. The, the because because the the goal of of these things we've been going through is to to say the uh, whatever can get you the most press immediately to keep you in the polls long enough to get you enough money to get you to the next debate. And I think that's sort of a, a problem is is um, we've somehow gone in for this idea that we need to have the, this many debates. Uh, I'm all for debates, um, but uh, I, I don't know that um, this this many is 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 helpful. There's other way. There are other ways to campaign, uh, which are probably uh, better for the uh, the campaigns individually, yeah. uh, better for the public and uh, uh not as good for the media. The right. Problem, so. And what, what's what's interested me, kind of saddened me, I guess, so I'm not surprised, is that essentially it seems like we've the media has abandoned even any pretense that debates will be about policy or about anything except for essentially about a, a clash of personalities. This debate was was you know seen as the big match between uh, between Donald Trump and uh, Ted Cruz, basically about whether Ted Cruz can you know whether Ted Cruz is actually a, a citizen or can he be president, which you know or or what New York values are, something like that. Things that are just completely ridiculous sort of things, and and that have nothing to do with policy, but as as you said, give people press and so. 
forth. And pretty clearly, it's, it seems to be working. For the first time, for instance, PredictWise, which is the political market site we've mentioned before on the podcast, for the first time, they predict that the candidate with the best chance of winning the GOP nomination is Donald Trump. They give him a 38% chance now with Marco Rubio second there at 30%. I mean, and what he's doing is working, and I just, I just find it's a, it's a travesty essentially. And the debates are just encouraging that sort of travesty, I think, and how they're covered, basically. I'll, I'll say what I would what I would like to see in a debate, and you've seen little glimmers and glimpses of it, as a Republican, is someone who will uh, stand up and sort of make the Republican case to say, and not, not, just, not just in the, you know, ISIS is a disaster, Obamacare is a disaster, we got to fix it. Um, but to say, here's, here's what we'll do. Here's where we're coming from. Here's what our ideology, uh, uh, teaches. And, and here's what I'm going to do from a policy perspective, consistent with that, that's going to, to make this country better. That would be great. And, and you've seen, you've seen bits and pieces of it, uh, um, from, and, and again, I'm going to show my own biases here, uh, from people like Rubio and Kasich. Uh, I think from folks like uh, Fiorina, although, again, I mean, so much of the debate, it's it's more at the early stages, introductions and, and storytelling uh, rather than than policy prescriptions. Um, but but I, I haven't I haven't seen that that yet uh, because it's been, I think, so, so Trump yeah. focused. I think some folks have tried to do it, and I think John Kasich early on tried to do a lot more of that. But when he saw that it was completely not working, he started to jump on sort of Looney Tunes foreign policy and other stuff to try to get some get some attention, get some traction. And yeah. this is what it forces even, I think, sensible, reasonable people to do. Now, Rubio, to, I guess in a sense to his credit, I, I, I'm convinced that maybe – well, not convinced, but I have a – a sneaking suspicion that Marco Rubio might be at least part robot because he seems to go into these debates and basically just kind of spout off talking points. And, and I guess that's better than engaging in attacks, but he seems oddly disconnected from this. And so I'm not exactly sure what he's doing though. At this point, uh, again, I'm, I'm, can't imagine I'm going to vote for the Republican candidate, whoever it happens to be, but I sure would feel a lot better if the Republican candidate were Marco Rubio, who's at least someone who I can say, well, okay, it wouldn't be an awful thing if he were president. I wouldn't be happy with it, but if you end up with a Trump or a Cruz, I don't even want to think about that. I mean, it won't be, it won't be Armageddon. I wouldn't be moving to Canada, or certainly, but I, I would be a lot more comfortable if, if it were Marco Ruby, who, who I at least think is not a nut. Well, that's, that's a that's a ringing endorsement. You know, he is not a nut. Yeah, so uh, he can use that freely in his campaign materials. <laughs> I'd be happy. But uh, yeah, I think we're both, I think it's fair to say that we're both very disappointed in the debates. Uh, you may or may not know this, Jay, but the Democrats do occasionally debate. Yeah. Hard well, to believe. I've, I've seen those, and those, those ratings are even lower. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they tend to be at like uh, Saturday or Sunday. And I think the next yeah. Democratic debate's a Sunday night. They they tend to schedule them at odd times. And that's, of course, because the Democratic <laughs> National Committee is essentially a subsidiary of Hillary Clinton for president, basically, is how they worked it out. And I think the Sanders campaign is right to be upset about that. But there's some good news from the Sanders campaign. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's once gargantuan lead over Bernie Sanders has shrunk considerably. There's only two weeks to go until Iowa. Sanders has pulled within four points of Clinton in Iowa polling. 
In New Hampshire, which votes a week later, Sanders actually has a five-point lead over Clinton in most polls. Nationally, mm-hmm. of course, Clinton still, she's around 14 points up, but that's narrowed from around 26 points. That was uh, her lead as recently as December. So, I mean, things are looking better for Bernie Sanders, although once you get past those first few primaries and caucuses, you start getting into Nevada and South Carolina. That's where Clinton has pretty big leads, over 20 points in both cases, although some people are wondering, and I think rightly so, if Bernie Sanders wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, maybe those leads start to shrink, and all of a sudden, does Bernie Sanders have a legitimate, if outside, shot? I mean, is Bernie Sanders sort of the, using my football analogy for this week, the uh, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers playing the Denver Broncos here? You know, I don't know. But, no, uh... no, he's not. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's sort of fun to speculate on that. I, I, I think partially what you're seeing is there is always a polls uh, narrow towards the end as you Good get point. closer to yeah. actual voting. Uh, people become less undecided and and pick one camp or the other. So there's there's that. Uh, There is also sort of a uh, New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, almost a sense of perhaps a a protest vote, uh, knowing that that Hillary will be the the, uh, ultimate nominee. But, you know, I mean, I would liken it to the the Pat Buchanan campaign in in 92. no one really expected that that he would win, but there were there were some people uh, who were willing to do it as a, a sense of a, a protest vote right. and sort of maybe to push uh, uh, George H. Uh, w. Bush. Um, the good uh, Bush, as I like right. to think of him. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I think there's some of that going on, and Sanders may do well in Iowa. Uh, I'd say he may even win New Hampshire, um, but uh, after that, yeah, I think it's sort of a, a, a so what. Um, you know, it's sort of. Um, well, I certainly think Democrats hope that because uh, Bernie. Well, uh, it, I mean, looking at head-to-head matchups for general elections means nothing right now. But I think Hillary Clinton has a lot better shot against whoever the Republicans put up than Bernie Sanders would. And, oh, oh, I agreed. I would, I would love to see you know, as a Republican, love to see Bernie Sanders as the candidate. Of course, yeah, um, as the most left-leaning, uh, uh, crazy man sort of sort of uh, candidate. Ever. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, I don't think it's going to happen no. I mean, for, for a bunch of reasons. And uh, <clears throat> first of all, it, it's also the money. Um, he may do well and he may have enough money to, to do well in those couple states. But uh, I don't see coffers uh, being being filled. An organization. Uh, keep, in mind, keep in mind, Hillary Clinton gets a lot of money from the evil corporations and Wall Street and all those sorts of folks. Um uh, not because they're necessarily in favor of her, but uh, she's still a, for what I say, sort of the devil you know. Well, and there's there's plenty of research uh, on corporate. There. Yeah, there's there's plenty of research on corporate giving that in campaigns that makes it really clear that they do this very pragmatically in that they yeah. they try to cover all their bets and make sure that no matter who wins, they have a voice. And so Hillary Clinton is the odds-on favorite still at this point. So of course she's going to get a lot of money, and she has those New York ties as well. So uh, so yeah, I think still and those New York values. That's right. That's right. So I still think that Hillary <laughs> Clinton, yeah, overwhelming favorite though. At least at least it's been a little more interesting. She's getting some kind of a challenge, which is which right. is something. So, okay, um, Jay, you you mentioned that uh, there's a story that's been interesting interesting to you this week uh, in the Supreme Court. Something about uh, public sector unions, right? Well, th- there is. It's a um, Supreme Court heard arguments in the uh, California Teachers Union case uh, 
Friedrichs, I believe is the plaintiff's name, uh, versus the California Teachers Union that uh, deals with whether or not uh, non-union members can be required to pay a what are essentially union dues. Um, under California law, and many states are like this, uh, you, you are not necessarily required to join the union. Uh, but if you choose not to join the union, <clears throat> you pay what is, is uh, essentially a fee that uh, is, is supposed to pay for what the union does for you, collective bargaining right. and so forth. And the Supreme Court um, upheld this back in the 70s, I believe it 77, was. Yeah. I think they, they did. Um, and the, the this money uh, that you would pay, none of it would go go directly to political purposes. Uh, political so lobbying meaning, and so forth. Yeah, well, no, it, it could go to lobbying, uh, but nothing directly to... Like campaign donations and so forth. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, these these uh, teachers argued that look they they don't want to be a part of this. Uh, they would rather keep keep their money and not be required uh, by the state to fund an organization uh, to lobby things lobby for things with which they they disagree. So then so would they? Get, so I want to get your thoughts as, as a good as a good liberal. Where are you on this? I don't know if I'm as, I'm probably uh, a bad liberal, but I'm even worse conservative. So I, I think. I think I'd have no problem with it if those teachers then uh, bargained for their own contracts individually. So I'm fine okay. with them not not being part of that. But I think then any of the collective bargaining benefits that they would get, they shouldn't be able to get. And then they have to essentially deal with the school district or the county or whoever it is who's signing their checks individually. And I think if that were the case, all of a sudden their tune would change quite a lot because there's no way they would get the same deal. Hmm. So I'm fine with that, but they, they don't get to be, I, as far as I'm sorry, they don't get weird, to be free riders. I, I, that's an argument I hadn't, I hadn't heard. Wow, I'm original. Every once in a while, that just blows my that's mind. Almost, so. th- that's almost like the private sector. You know, I and if where, they want to do that. Just everybody has their own deal. And if they want to do that, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't have a problem with that. But that's not what they're arguing. They're arguing that they want the benefits of collective bargaining without actually paying in any cost. And to me, that well, that's that's the definition of free riding. And I'm not in favor of free riders. So that's my stance on that. So you're 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 sort of okay with it, but against it. Well, I, yeah, I'm okay with it if they want if they're willing to put their money where their mouth is. They're saying we don't want to pay for this, and I say fine. Don't pay for it and then negotiate your own contract. Okay. Well, I think that's that's actually I think what the unions are afraid of is that uh, uh, people may may well decide they can do just as well. I think that's great. Uh, and you know what, Jay? If they can, then I would suggest that then there's no legitimate role for unions. Okay. And but I wow. think that yeah well you know I just think that's the whole point that's the whole reason why unions were formed back in the day is that people found that they were getting a bad deal negotiating individually realized there were strength in unity and so they got together and bargained collectively and did better and there are a number of uh, studies from economists and political scientists that say that people who bargain collectively do get better benefits and better salary but I do think if people feel that they can get a better deal on their own and that it's, it's smarter for them. They should have that opportunity. I'm all for that kind of freedom. So in that sense, I guess I do disagree. I do agree with you. And so that makes me a bad liberal, maybe. I don't know. Okay. I you know, I would just point out, and as, as Justice Scalia also pointed out, uh, federal union members uh, or federal workers have sort of the same um, option, but they don't, or they, they have the option to, to opt out, but not 
uh, pay a fee. So sort of federal federal employees have what the California teachers are seeking. Um, so I, and and his his point was and. The federal unions go on uh, quite well. They're funded quite well. Everybody gets uh, uh, gets gets what they want. Um, now, For now. again, I suppose you can argue the the free rider issue, but uh, there's also a question of what 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 are you really getting from your union membership? And that's, I think that's a fair the question. These teachers, yeah. these teachers are asking. I think when, it, when when money goes to lobbying and so forth. I think it's a fair question to ask, and I, I get why they would they would ask that. And I think the only way to find out what they're getting, you could say, is that if all of a sudden they weren't part of the union, and then and then they would see what they're getting. But yeah, people should be able to make a free and informed choice, and I'm all for that. So I'm going to surprise okay. you by agreeing with you a whole lot more, I guess, than you maybe Mike thought. Mike ask you right to work. All it's, right. Well, yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. But anyway, anyway, so so it's nice every once in a while where we can end things on a note of agreement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to yeah, think, so, think so, too. So, All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode, everyone. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, or criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys podcast, which comes out every Wednesday, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week, and where you can comment, too, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. Check it out and maybe give us a like. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.